1: Good morning, and welcome back to The Coffee Clatch. My name is Angie Eaton, and I'll be hosting our show today. But first, we have a few messages from our sponsors. Are you a parent with a newly diagnosed child with autism? Are you looking for answers on how you can help your child? The online training course, Discovering Behavioral Intervention, is the answer. Real parents take you through applied behavioral analysis in 10 step-by-step modules. Learn more at UDiscovering.org. That's the letter U, Discovering.org, and follow them on Twitter at UDiscovering. We're proud to have Mayor Johnson, your special education super source, sponsoring today's show. The Mayor Johnson sale is on. Enjoy drastic savings on hundreds of products at MayorJohnson.com. That's Mayor-Johnson.com. Visit them today. Well, I'm thrilled that we're back for yet another show with Dr. Florence. To date, uh, Dr. Florence and I have really compiled a nice series of interviews dealing with the Maverick Mind that can be found on thecoffeeclatch.com. You can scroll down on that website and you'll see um, uh, uh, something that says the Maverick Mind series with Dr. Sherry Florence. And we uh, have quite a few Interviews amassed there now. I recommend listening to those for more in-depth explanation of, of of who a maverick is, and and many more details about that. And I'd like to briefly reintroduce Dr. Florence. If this is the first show that you're tuning into, Dr. Sherry Florence has a dual doctorate in speech hearing science and psychology. She earned the coveted career development award from the National Institutes of Health on brain engineering and she has more than 30 years of clinical experience. In the early 1990s, she started brain engineering labs to assist all types of mavericks, from children to medical students to adults in the workforce. Among other books, she's the author of Maverick Mind, which chronicles her own journey with her son Whitney and the remarkable recovery that she was able to guide him through and which ultimately led her into the work she's done with brain engineering ever since. Dr. Florence, welcome back. Well, thank you, Angie.
0: It's great to be here, and uh, I'm very happy that we're going to talk about
1: some interesting topics today. Wonderful. Well, specifically what we're going to focus on today is um, how to interpret test results. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's um, something that's very important for parents to understand uh, because although many professionals are are very well equipped to interpret and understand the results i think it's uh really important for parents to understand for themselves and to have a strong um understanding uh you know beneath them so that they mm-hmm. can um take that even further when they're looking at their child in particular so why don't we first start off by talking about what the typical tests are that are administrated to children uh, when people are looking for clues as to what's causing a child's behavior? Mm -hmm.
0: Well, we have two types of tests. We have subjective tests and we have objective tests. So what the best practice standards state is the first step we would do is ask what is the chief complaint? What is the main problem? And so if we, we would ask a parent, we would ask the teacher, what, what is the main problem here? What's the reason we're doing this? So let's say the child is disruptive in class and doesn't get his work done on time. And so then we think, why would that happen? What do you think, Angie? Child's acting out in class, not finishing his work. What might be the reason that that would happen?
1: I think at first glance, I might think about um, attention, that mm-hmm. uh, maybe a child's not able to focus for long periods. Okay, so let's take that that idea. So if we
0: thought maybe it's attention, that's a very good thought. So then our first question would be, we have two types of attention. We have verbal attention. We have visual attention. So at school... We need verbal attention. Seventy-six percent of our school day is listening. So the question would be, well, do we have trouble listening in the classroom? And are we good at computer games at home after school? Are we the star shooter on the basketball team? Uh, Are we good at doing mazes and puzzles? Then we'd see that we have an attention problem that relates to Our language system, it relates to receptive language processing. So the visual system is working well in terms of attention. If computer games are a, a big source of good attention, and not working very well in the classroom. Then from the chief complaint, we look at subjective assessment. The most valid subjective assessment According to Dr. Barry Braselton at Harvard, who's a uh, well-respected pediatrician worldwide, uh, he would say the best source of subjective analysis is the parent. The parent knows the child. The parents know the child the best. Longitudinally, uh, you've been observing your children, and you know them. You know how they their strengths and weaknesses. So. Gathering information from the parents on how a child processes would be the next step. And the following step would be the teacher, the classroom teacher. What is the teacher seeing? And when we think about that, we want to ask the teacher questions that lead to solutions, not that focus on the off-target behavior alone. And if anyone is interested in how to do the subjective assessments, we can send you those free of charge, those guidelines, based on best practice standards. If you go to my website at www.sherry, C-H-E-R-I, Florence, dot com, uh, we will send you this material with our compliments. After the subjective assessment, we want to know why is the child having these symptoms? What would cause this? And then we do objective testing to look at something quantitative. We look at observable behavior that's normed. And the most common cornerstone for that is the Wechsler Intelligence Scale for children. That seems to be the most widely used test uh instrument that's used worldwide, something like the WISC, uh, for looking at broad overview of cognitive functioning. That's our cornerstone. Administered by the school psychologist generally.
1: Right, exactly. Um, and I think um is, is that a test that the? Let me let me just back up. Is that a test that schools will provide, or that uh, parents have to get on their own privately? Generally, that is the 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 cornerstone
0: of the psychoeducational battery in the school. That's the most frequently used test by the school psychologist. You can also get a, get a school battery done. Uh, at the neuropsychologist's office or at an educational psychologist's office. Some educational consultants provide similar uh, instruments, but this is typically offered as part of the school psychoeducational battery. So when parents get the test results to review before an IEP meeting, they need to look over what the scores mean, and I'm going to walk through a way to do that that might be very helpful for parents that are listening. Okay, let's go ahead and do that. So every psychometric test used by speech-language pathologists, occupational therapists, reading specialists, uh, or school psychologists or private psychologists uh, is based on normative data that's Uh, Uses the bell curve, and that means that most of the people are in the middle of the bell curve. So on your test results, you would be looking at scores between 110 uh, and between 90 and 109. That is the middle of the bell curve. 100 IQ is dead center, middle of the bell curve. And then we move away from the middle of the bell curve to uh, the high average and the low average, and then the outliers, which would be the superior or the borderline classifications. So if you look at your scaled scores on a diagnostic evaluation, and you take off, if you look at the scaled score, you look at a number that's two digits, it's missing the third digit. So an IQ of 130 could look like a scaled score of 13. So then 10 would be at the 50th percentile. That means 50 people out of 100 get a 10 or 100 IQ. And then maybe 63 people out of 100 get an 11. I mean, 63 people out of 100 get an 11 and maybe two people out of 100 get a 12, something like that. So you're having one standard deviation away from the mean, then two standard deviations away from the mean, and then a few people on either side. So we, w- when we look at test scores, we want to see, do we have 13s? That would be in the very superior range, or 130 IQ. Do we have 120s or 12s? That would be superior Do we have 110? That would be high average. 90 to 109 is average. 80 to 89 is low average. 70 to 79 is borderline. So most people are scoring within the middle of the bell curve, 90 to 110. And anything outside of that becomes less and less common. Does that make sense, Angie? It
1: does. And and just to reemphasize, what you're talking about is when, as a parent, you get the test back, you, you get the numbers, and you see 9, 10, 11, 12. And all, simply, all you need to do is add a zero to that number, and that will give you the equivalent, let's say, IQ for that particular area. And so it can give you an idea. What really a much better idea, i think of what that number means on the i q scale
0: right it, It's a predictor of that if you have a thirteen it's a predictor of hundred and thirty i q so what's easier to look at is the percentiles so okay. I have a profile in front of me, and when I look at this profile, i'm going to look at it's a it's a high school student's profile. And it says his intellectual functioning is at the average range. And that's because the scores were added together and put through uh, a statistic that, that looks at how they all combine. That's based on the idea that your IQ is a unitary function, that it's the sum of all the parts. But when when the IQ tests were first invented, the first IQ test was invented by... Binet in France. And his idea, this is back a 100 years ago, was that you could look at each subtest and then have a school of what he called mental orthopedics and train the skills so that your intelligence would improve. That's what he thought. And he thought at that time that people that were quote-unquote mentally retarded could become unmentally retarded by training the skills. The IQ test was then brought to uh California and became the Stanford Binet. And at that point they the researchers thought that uh, once an IQ, always an IQ. So if you had a hundred and twenty five IQ, that was it for the rest of your life. The
1: IQ was the sum of the parts. although that wasn't the original intent. Correct. Now, both ideas have value. But when
0: we think about most people get between 90 and 110 IQ, so if you have 92, 93, 95, 100, 94, 94, 94, and you add all that together and you come out with something like a 90-98 then that makes sense. And that's what most people have, that most people are within a standard deviation from the mean. So almost everybody is getting scores around 90 to 110. So this composite idea is good. But the profile that I see is more like the one that I want to talk about today. And that's where we have scores that are 13, 13. That's the 84th percentile. And then we have 7. That's the 16th percentile, seven 16th percentile, and eight 25th percentile. So this composite came out average, when really it's not average. Some of the scores are superior and some of the scores are considered to be the borderline range. You
1: see? So that really is providing you with a lot of information that you wouldn't get if you were just looking at the one big number. It gives you some targeted information. Right. That's right. And this is called a twice exceptional profile. Now, in this case,
0: this was written up as the student had an attention problem but was an average intellectual functioning student, when really a score of 13 uh, or 130 IQ in the manual for the whisk is considered superior very superior so we have a very superior score a very superior score a superior score we have a 16 in visual attention which is above very superior we have a 15 in visual puzzles above very superior so we're talking about something that isn't average we're looking at picking out all these scores that are off the bell curve. The 16 and the 15 aren't even on the high end of the bell curve. They're way out there. Then we look, where is the problem? The problem is an auditory sequential memory. So we go from visual puzzles at a 150 IQ, the 95th percentile, meaning only five people out of 100, could achieve at this level a sixteen ninety eighth percentile. Only two people out of 100 could ex- perform at this level. And then we look at auditory sequential memory. It's at the bottom 16th. We're looking at the profile of a maverick. Super high attention on visual subtests, very weak attention on an auditory processing subtest that is the root of all language processing and what is this chief complaint distractible not listening at school having trouble paying attention when he reads does he have trouble paying attention doing ski when he skis no when he plays soccer no when he plays computer games no he only has an attention problem in the classroom when he's processing language there's nothing average about him. He's superior at the very, very, very superior range on his visual tests. He's at the other end of the bell curve on his on his language working memory tests.
1: You see, Angie? I do, and I just wanted to say from my own experience, the very um, first test that I received Uh, It looked very much like that, a very similar profile. Um, There was a 16 on on one test, and her auditory processing, I think, was, uh, well, it was, you know, very, very low. But uh, I was so surprised when you walked me through her scores because the person who administered and evaluated the test really didn't pull that out. It just really came out as average. I mean, uh, the evaluator did say there were some strengths, but the overall picture that was painted was not one of twice exceptionality. Mm-hmm. It was average intelligence with a couple of strengths and a little bit of weakness, but it wasn't really called out. And mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, how is that very typical? Well, it's typical in the people that I see, but... I
0: trained at the National Institutes of Health in the brain science of how the brain is engineered and how all these component parts work. And I also had 20 years of experience in a hospital owning a hospital rehabilitation center where we looked at head injury patients and stroke patients, seizure patients, tumor patients, all kinds of neurogenic diseases. And so if you had a stroke we need to know if you are likely to improve in 30 days and how much improvement will you make. And in the schools, we look at a three-year plan when we write an IEP. And we're thinking about milestones in between those three years, but we're not looking at 30 days improvement. So for stroke patients, and let's say this average stroke patient is in the elderly group of human beings, We're looking at older people that have had brain damage, and the first thing we look at is, are there any high scores? That's a prognostic predictor for improvement. Is anything working right after this stroke? So if we looked at this profile and we were writing up a report to get Medicare coverage for the stroke patient, and we saw 13, 13, 13, 12, 16, 15, 7, 7, 8, we'd think that those 7s and 8s are the skills that are deficient and need to be trained. And we'd think that the prognostic predictor suggests with all that cognitive strength, there's a good chance we can see improvement in the weak areas in 30 days. We write up a report. We submit it to the attending physician. He looks it over to see if it makes logical sense, and then Medicare will pay for that and we write another one in 30 days to decide if enough improvement has been achieved based on our predictions to grant another 30 days of insurance coverage. And that is why when I look at these scores, I look at where are the highs and where are the lows because I'm thinking of how to create improvement every day.
1: Which is exactly what you would do with a, a child in school. Um, exact same thing. So, is there anything else on the WISC that you can point us to that might enlighten us with uh, inter- interpreting the results? Um, or are there some other tests that you you could help us look at with results? Well, Interpreting one of the things results.
0: That's very interesting about the WISC is that. A lot of parents will say to me, "Well, I knew that this is going to not come out very well because my child has a read- has trouble reading, or my child has trouble writing. So I knew that the test would would not show good results. But on the WISC, there's no reading and writing. It's really a test of visual and verbal thinking. However, all the verbal, th- all the visual tests." have a verbal component. So when we think about, well, is that really fair for a child with a language problem? Then we want to think about what does the federal government think about that? Like in this case, the case that we were just talking about, the child was uh, determined to be average with an attention deficit when really there was a language problem that wasn't identified. And so what the federal government would say is that tests that are administered have to take into account a child's sensory or expressive or receptive language skills. And that means that tests of and I'm quoting from the from the federal guidelines, tests of intelligence that are language dependent introduce the possibility that the scores can reflect the effect of the student's language problem on test taking rather than a reasonable estimate of mental ability and that's what happened in the case that we were talking about earlier Angie the sevens were in and the eights were in language processing if you eliminated those he would have had a very superior iq we can't really eliminate those but we can take a look at it and what the federal government says is that Tests like the WISC may provide information that's very interesting and even useful for diagnostic purposes. They are not appropriate for reflecting the intellectual ability of a student with a language problem. If the language dependent component of these tests are eliminated in an attempt to determine the student's IQ, the IQ will be invalid because the tests were not administered in conformance with the instructions provided by their producers. So even the visual tests of the WISC require adequate receptive language skills for understanding the directions, and many of them also, like the picture completion test, requires a verbal response. Or they're timed, and that timing element can also be a component of the timeline manager of the verbal pathway. So once you start looking at all the different things the student has to do to finish these various subtests of the WISC, the federal government says that if you have a language problem, this test, and many like it, are not appropriate for determining the student's IQ. And we can see that's exactly what happened in the case I was describing earlier. He had 16, 15, 13. These are all super superior scores. And then he had, in his language processing, he had a score of 7. That's the bottom 16th percentile. Adding that together to get an average IQ, according to the federal government, is not appropriate. You see, Angie? Angie?
1: I do, and one of the things I'm thinking of is how somebody would first determine that there's a language issue in order to say that these test results may not be valid, and I suppose that goes back to those um, subjective questionnaires that you referred to earlier. Uh Uh-huh, and
0: that federal law that I'm quoting is from the same manual that the checklists are in. And what that manual says is, it's something that I know you will find near to your heart, is that we can give the checklist and provide teacher accommodations without labeling the child with any, any diagnostic categorization. And the purpose of that manual that was developed for the U.S. Office of Education is to help teachers help children in need without classifying them as a special education student. So the first step is to use the checklist and add in accommodations to help the child become symptom-free and study that and tweak that, and if that doesn't work, then add the objective testing and then move on to special education.
1: Okay. Um that's a, a, a nice clear pathway um uh for people to follow. So um is there anything else that you would like to talk about in terms of interpreting results um with the with the WISC or any other tests? Well I'm gonna have I would like you to kind of lead me into what are some of the issues because I'm not familiar with them all. Well, in the children that
0: I see in my private practice and in my world travels when I consult with ministries of education around the world, the biggest concern to me is that many children with language problems are mis or underdiagnosed. And once the language problem is misunderstood that can lead to a host of behavior problems, acting out or withdraw. withdrawal. Withdrawal can lead to depression. Acting out can lead to getting in trouble. And this fight or flight behavior can develop into a chronic series of mental health problems which could have been avoided if the evaluation identified the language problem to begin with. So what was a very correctable language problem can very rapidly develop into a, a more chronic mental health problem that's harder to correct and that can affect and even devastate the entire family. So getting the, there's a a neurosurgeon on my website who says, you know, getting the evaluation right leads to the right solution and I met his son, he's talking about his son, highly visual neurosurgeon, his mother's on the on, in the video, highly visual radiologist, and they're talking about how the language problem in their son was not identified until he was in 10th grade. So he had all those years of failing and struggling at school and heartache and disappointment at home. Because the language problem was not identified because of this miscalculation from the evaluation by adding the scores together. Once it was identified correctly, as the doctor says on the video, then the solution was rapidly put into place and the child, the student, improved dramatically. Very important, isn't it, Angie? Yeah,
1: it really is. So what happens in the case where somebody goes directly to the WISC, um, they haven't considered language issues, they look at the scores, and and there are weaknesses in the verbal areas. Um, I I guess my question is, how how can you, you... Okay, so the test does show weakness in those verbal areas, but does that necessarily translate into, oh, we have a language issue here that could be corrected? Or is it simply taken on face value of, uh, you know, well, I guess we just have low scores there?
0: Right. Well, you want to look at a couple of things. You want to look at the chief complaint. What's the primary problem? Is it related to language? Is it something that has to do with listening, reading, writing, or speaking? Then we want to look at the second thing, the subjective assessment that the parents and the teachers gave. give. So I have a 50-item uh, analysis that I use, and most of the people that I work with have over 45 symptoms out of 50. That's a lot of symptoms to match a profile. You know, Mm -hmm. a strep throat might have three symptoms. This is 45 symptoms of a language problem. I look at the teacher's checklist, and I see, you know, 90% of the symptoms on the teacher checklist for language are endorsed. Then if I see weak scores on the verbal parts of the WISC, I think now we have something that matches. The chief complaint, the symptoms and the objective testing all agree. If the all the scores on the whisk were high, would I say, well then the subjective symptoms are wrong, they're about something else? No, I'd want to do some language testing that specifically addresses those language symptoms. For example, um your inner ear, your cochlea in the inner ear regulates how you pay attention For listening. So, we can do some selective attention testing to see if your attention zoom lens activates to listen at school. We can look at how you utilize your immediate, short term, long term memory to get information into knowledge. The WISC is all in immediate memory, although, you do draw on some things that you've learned before. Uh, you're not learning something new and retaining it and then testing it two days later. So we want to look at this more carefully because we don't want to ever disregard what the parents are saying. Mm -hmm. So there's ways to reassess this. Let's say medical students. I work with a lot of medical students that are failing. Many times they do well on all the subtests of the WISC. It's not hard for them. They're in medical school. They have good vocabularies. They can make sentences. However, often the test for auditory sequential memory is an optional test, so it might not be given. And that's the one that they'd have the most trouble with. So they come out with 150 IQ or something, 130 IQ. They're in medical school, This test isn't hard. But when you test their selective auditory attention, there are 100 items, and they may get 10 right. The average person gets 80 right.
1: So I guess that, for me, it all goes back to, and we mentioned this before in previous interviews, that this is your background language. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but... It, it all makes sense if you if you're looking for that. But I I just don't feel that people even pull that up um, often as the issue. They don't say, oh, hmm, let's look for language. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't want to speak for everybody, but um, just you know, in my circles and and what I hear, it, it it's not something that you hear people talking about all the time. You hear a lot about attention and autism and, um, things like that. Uh, and then, you know, so <laughs> I, I, I don't know what the solution is there. I guess it's just, um, just continuing education and, and, and learning about these issues and hopefully we're doing something to get it out there. Um, I, I don't know if what, you know, what I'm saying resonates with you, um, from what well, you're it seeing. Does,
0: it, it does very much, Angie, because I've been doing this for such a long time that I've seen diagnostic trends over the years. So when I started out, which was in 1969, about the majority of children suffering or failing at school had a category called developmental aphasia. That would be like childhood the equivalent of a childhood stroke patient. Aphasia is a common term for a stroke patient's language problem. This was called developmental aphasia, meaning you didn't have a stroke, but you had the same kind of processing problems a stroke patient would have. 25% of the population had developmental aphasia. And now, then, some of that group became ADD, ADHD. That was due to Dr. Cantwell, who developed the term ADD. But he was not thinking about children with language problems having attention deficit disorder. He was thinking about children having attention problems in both visual and auditory processing, and that was a psychiatric condition. And Dr. Cantwell and I worked together for many years trying to think about, could you have an attention problem without a language problem? He wrote a book about it and said that everyone needs to cross disciplines and work together to figure out which is a language problem and which is mental illness and he thought they were very distinct groups. Mhm. So that these resources are available, best practice standards on how to interpret the whisk, how to Uh, do an evaluation correctly, which tests the parents should advocate for and want included in the battery? What should the parents say at the IEP? All of this is in a manual from the federal government, and we will send that out to anyone that contacts our website, which is www.Sherry C-H-E-R-I Florence F-L-O-R-A-N-C-E dot com and this manual is a seventy nine page wonderful, wonderful manual that is uh has been created so that practitioners like myself can pass it out at no
1: charge. Wonderful. I hope everybody takes advantage of that. Um one last thing before we end in our interview today. What about those um extra tests um the auditory processing tests can you uh, could you tell us which tests are available um and and why somebody might choose to have those tests done mm-hmm. or or how you know you could request them i suppose well, you want to go back to what is the primary problem okay is
0: it a primary pro- is the primary problem? listening and paying attention at school. Then we want to go to tests that measure listening and paying attention at school. So let's say you're over 12 years old. There's a test called the Test of Adolescent and Adult Language that's used for middle school, high school kids, particularly high school kids. And it's got two tests for listening, two tests for speaking, two tests for reading, two tests for writing processing. It's how we process what we read, how we process what we write, what we say, what we hear. And when you finish that test, you can look at processing for the main idea, for the details in all four language processors. That's a very nice way to drill down that receptive and expressive language system, and it matches exactly the checklist in the the teacher checklist for listening, reading, speaking, and writing. Another test is the test of auditory perceptual skills. That's called the TAPS, and that test looks at how we pay attention and process. We have a test called the listening test. It's how we listen to details, how we listen to concepts, how we pull out the main idea, how we understand a passage of Uh, that's presented and answer questions. So these are the kinds of tests that take a deeper look at the symptoms that are presented. Break apart listening into five or six components. See which which areas of listening are strong, which are weak. And these are easy to administer and are recommended. uh, Once you read the page that says, do not give the whisk, when you turn the page... It says, these are the tests you should give. Hmm. And they match the checklist. So it's a very well-organized manual, and it's written directly for parents to advocate for their children at school. That's what it says on the very first page. It was created in an effort to unite teachers and parents and the special education and psychological professionals so they're all thinking alike. And it's just a wonderful book. I've I've found it create harmony uh, for so many different points of view and pull everybody together. Because everybody, the psychologists, the teachers, the doctors, everybody wants what's
1: best for the child. And I can attest to that. I've been through that process myself. And I appreciate you pointing me in that direction.